was excited about the lyrics of those songs because it's amazing. When I think through my sermon, then I, I, I read the theology of my sermon and, and I see it in the songs. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, um, so, so Sovereign Grace Music writes great. And the last one by Bob Coughlin is um, excellent songwriter. Anyways, good morning. This is my, I don't know how many times I've preached here. I've preached here probably um, 20-something years ago for Steve when he first got here. And then um, for Alan, I don't know, I think I preached for Alan before he passed, and then obviously after he passed I preached. And I'm back for Mark. This is, this is a wonderful privilege. You guys have some great pastors. So this is a great privilege for me to step in and, and be able to fill in the pulpit here. And I have been studying through the, the, the pastoral epistles, um, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4 today, if you want to open your Bibles there. There will be slides for most of the verses, but not all of them. And, and so many things in the pastoral epistles that I have never seen before, because I spent a lot of time as we've been traveling through Europe, just focusing in on these three letters over and over and over again some things about what it means to be a believer and what it means to grow in holiness. So this week and next week, are t- are the two sermons are tied together. This week, 2 Timothy 4, and next week, 1 Timothy 4. We're going to go backwards. And I've titled this message today called Living in the Now with the End in View. And we're going to look at Paul's last words before he's put to death in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But I want to give you my foundational beliefs first. And these are some things that, that I have formed over the last seven, eight years about how, how then they kind of become my filter that I see Scripture through. I, th- I think they come from Scripture, then, then I, I see Scripture through them. And that is this. Salvation is a process, not an event. And what I mean by that is, is I believe salvation is a past event, i.e., I got saved. For me, it was April 1979, I accepted Christ, and I came into His family. But also, Scripture teaches I'm being saved right now. And Scripture teaches that I'm going to be saved at the second coming. And, and we tend to, to, through after the Reformation, the terminology of salvation, sanctification, and glorification were used to, to describe this process. And the process is all becoming like Jesus Christ. The end goal, I will stand before God, Ephesians chapter 1, holy and blameless before him. That's how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 1. He describes it in Romans chapter 8, that we are predestined to be conformed we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Someday when I stand before God at the second coming, I will be utterly like Jesus Christ, i.e. as a human, not as God. I will be like him in my character, in my thoughts, in my actions, in my motives, completely like Jesus Christ. Salvation is the concept of coming into the family of God where I got saved, where God brought me in, put his spirit within me, forgave me, redeemed me, um, changed my heart, but at that moment, I was not like Christ. I had to continue to grow in this salvation. My salvation continues, what we call sanctification. And, and I become more like Jesus Christ every day, hopefully. And then someday, when Christ returns, that will be complete. And I'll stand before him just like his son. Does that make sense? So that, that filter is what I see scripture through in my sermon is today. Unfortunately, much of the way we have um, shared the gospel with people we've actually truncated that gospel down. In, in well-meaning, we've taken that gospel and reduced it as, as simple as we can for people, where we say, you know, if, 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 you, if you will repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And by the way, you'll go to heaven when you die. 
And so we've, we've taken this idea of I, I need to get saved so that I can go to heaven when I die. So we're focusing on the beginning of the event of salvation and the very end of the event, and we focus on dying and going to heaven, when frankly, Scripture's focus is not on dying and going to heaven. It's there, but Scripture's focus is on the resurrection from the dead. That's where my salvation is complete, not when I die and go to heaven. It's when the second coming happens and I'm raised from the dead, then my salvation is complete. But in, in this simplistic gospel we've been telling people, again, well-meaning, we've left out that in-between time, the growing in salvation, as though it's optional. Now, no one says it's optional, but we put so much emphasis on getting saved so that you can escape hell and go to heaven when you die, which is all true, but we've missed what most of the New Testament teaches. The majority of the New Testament is focused on the in-between time. It's focused on from the time I get saved till that day I die and living the life of Christ on this earth, living the life of loving my brothers and sisters, living the life of serving a broken, hurting world. And because our gospel is say this prayer so you can be saved and go to heaven when you die, people aren't always aware of the urgency of waking up every day to serve the living God. So that's what my sermon's about today. Because Paul is our example. Paul, the concept of living in the now with the end in view, I think is how Paul lived his life from the moment, he's, the moment Christ knocked him off his horse on the road to Damascus. He had this perspective. So, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 8. And I want to read these words to you. Verse 7, we're going to spend most of our time. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The context here is Paul is in prison. And he knows he's not getting out this time. He knows he's going to be put to death. Paul was a Roman citizen. He knew how he was going to die. He was going to die by being beheaded. If you, if, you were, if you were a Roman citizen, they could not crucify you. They could only crucify criminals and slaves and non-citizens. If you're a Roman citizen, which Paul was, he would have his head chopped off. So he knew what was coming. Nero was king. And Nero was a sadistic, megalomaniac, wacko. He, he, he loved to inflict pain upon people. Paul knew he would not get out. And he was passing the baton of ministry onto Timothy. That's what 2 Timothy is all about. Timothy, I, he, here it is. Here's the cloak. Here's the baton of ministry. Carry on what we've been doing for decades. So I'm going to start in first, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 2. Let's pray first. Father, thank you, Lord, for your incredible love for us. As Ephesians says, that um, though we were dead in our sins, but God rich in his love and mercy for us, made us alive in Christ. We thank you for that love and that mercy and your grace in our lives, Father. Now open our hearts and minds to your word. Convict us this morning. Encourage us, whatever we need, to, to further today move closer to the image of your Son. Thank you, and we love you. All because of Jesus we can pray to you. In his name, amen. So Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. And, and just, I had that underlined in the, in the scripture on the, on the screen because Paul's real heart, his entire ministry has been, I'm ministering until Christ returns. Because that, that's what we're headed towards. 
And I actually believe that Paul believed that he would see Christ return in his lifetime. You can see it in his writings that he, he's not talking about a future that is way past him. I think he believed he would see it. That's very clear in First and Second Thessalonians, some of Paul's earliest letters. But now he knows he's not going to see it. Now he knows he's going to die. And so, so this whole idea of I've been living in light of the coming of Christ and standing before him. So he, t he charges Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom. Four commands, Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repu reprove and rebuke. I can't even say those words. Reprove and rebuke. And exhort with complete patience and teaching. So there's actually five commands there that Paul gives Timothy. That is, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. I think this is what Paul did his whole ministry. He's telling Timothy, this is what we've been doing together. Now, it's, now you carry the baton on and continue these things. This is how Paul lived. Now he's calling Timothy to do the same. Verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I encourage you, I won't take the time this morning, but go back to chapter 3 of, of 2 Timothy, where Paul lists oh, six or seven verses of, of the vices of people in the last times. And, and functionally, Paul thought he was in the last times. As, as we say, oh, we're in the last days. Well, that started when Christ raised from the dead, the last days did. And so Paul gives a description there, and then next week in 1 Timothy 4, we'll look at a description of what the last days will look like. And it looks like today. Looks like our world today. And I don't think we're any different than the previous generations. There's always been people out there that live selfishly for themselves, contrary to the ways of God, even against God. And Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy that he is to, to teach in light of this because people just want to hear what they want to hear. They have itching ears, and they'll ignore the truth and wait to be satisfied with those itching ears that bring us hope and comfort but require nothing from us. Have you ever heard the expression today? Um, I, I was talking with, with my daughter about the common expression that it's, it's not God is sovereign in the universe. It's the universe. Well, the universe is guiding me. Have you ever heard that? The universe is guiding me. And, and I say, what's the universe? Is it personal? Does it have a mind? Does it ask anything from you? In the end, what people want, this itching ears, is they want, they want to know there's something greater than me out there, but they want no accountability to that greater thing. That's the universe. That's not our God. I love the previous, two previous songs before this that was, that, that this is who our God is. He's unchangeable. He, I forget the other ones, but he is, our God is a person who is sovereign and good and holy, and he's the one we serve. So, Verse 5, in light of those things, the times that coming, these people won't endure this, you, Timothy, verse 5, always be sober-minded. So sober-minded, the word sober-minded can refer to don't get drunk, but in the New Testament, it's almost primarily, if not exclusively, used for an attitude, not a lack of alcohol. It's referring to the attitude of seriousness, intentionalness, intentionality. Be sober-minded, be intentional, be serious, Timothy. Endure suffering. 
This whole truncated gospel I told you about, sometimes we've, we've truncated the gospel down to, to say this prayer so you're forgiven and you go to heaven when you die. In the in-between time, what we've done to Jesus is we've turned him into a distributor of benefits. Life's hard, Jesus. Help me out today. You know, I want this blessing in my life. And, 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 and we mean well when we do this, but we forget he's, he's, he's certainly a distributor of benefits. He, how, how many of you have benefited from following Jesus Christ? I don't, every hand should go up. Okay, good. Um, but that's not his primary role. His primary role is the king, is the Lord. And we serve him. And guess what? If we serve Jesus Christ, we will suffer. And he won't always remove that suffering from us. With Timothy, it was persecution. He says, endure suffering. He's talking about endure the persecution that comes your way because you follow Jesus. Endure persecution because you are a leader in the church. God doesn't rescue us always. God doesn't heal us always. He makes us endure the pain. So Timothy, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I love to sometimes teach more on what I think an evangelist is. But that's not today's sermon. Okay, this is just this then. It's more of a church planter. It's what Paul and Timothy were doing. Taking the gospel, setting up churches, and moving to the next town. And Timothy, that's what we've been doing. You've been doing the work of an evangelist. Now fulfill it. Continue it. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Well, why? Because Paul now says, because I'm going out. Verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, for the time of my departure has come. So the day that you know the end is here. And some of you probably had some health issues or maybe even some safety issues where you thought, this is it. I'm done with my life. And you then start thinking about possibly maybe regrets. Oh, I wish I would have done this or that. You know the old expression that that people on their deathbed never wish they spent more time at work. You know? Wish they spent more time with family, those kind of things. But Paul knows, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time under my departure has come. And this next verse now shows that he's been living his life in the present for the last 30 years of ministry with this end in view. By these simple words in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Those are three short phrases, two metaphors, fighting and running, and then straightforward, I have kept the faith. All three of the verbs are what's called the perfect tense. Perfect tense is the concept in Greek of a, an action that, took, that takes place in the past but has ramifications for the present. So Paul says, I have fought the good fight. This is something I've been doing a long time. And now the ramifications are here. And I can stand here and say, I did it. I have finished the race. I've been running for 30 years, this race called Christianity. And now I'm done. I have done it. And I have kept the faith. What I want to do is I want to... Let, let me read the next one. Let me read the next verse, 8. So, Angela, I got ahead of myself, as I always do. I want to read verse 8. Then we will come back and look at verse 7 in detail. 
I've kept the faith, end of verse 7. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, his second coming is the, 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 the heart of what Paul's been living for. I'm living in light of seeing Jesus Christ at his coming. Now he realizes, as he talks about in Philippians chapter 1, I believe it is, that he's going to die and go be with Jesus, as opposed to see him return. But... But he still has this concept that that day Christ returns, he's the righteous judge. And we will stand before him. So we'll look at that in a moment. But what I want to do now, in light of this righteous judge, I want to talk about us living today, in the now, with that day in view, that we will stand before him. We will stand before, yes, our loving Savior. Luckily, we stand before our Savior and not the one who's going to condemn us. Because you will never be condemned if you follow Jesus Christ. But there's still a day of reckoning coming, as we'll see. It's a day where we give an account for what we've done in this life that he's given us to do. And Paul feels confident that he has accomplished what God has given him to do. He has fulfilled his ministry that he's telling Timothy to do. And I think we can, be the, I think we can have the same confidence. Not perfection in this life, but a confidence that I have given my all what God has given me to do. So on that day, when I know my end is here, will I be able to say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So now let's look at each phrase of verse 7 one at a time. I'll read verse 7 again. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Let's focus on the fight. Paul uses words that are used in athletic contests that require battling and struggling. Um, boxing, these words are used in boxing matches and wrestling matches in ancient, ancient times. And I, I don't know if you've ever, anyone here ever boxed? Anyone ever wrestled? As a, as a young boy, I lived in Nellis Air Force Base, and boxing was really big back then. This is, Muhammad Ali was not the champion because he had been dis, whatever happened to him because of Vietnam. But, but still, I don't know who the world champion was then, but we used to watch the lighter weights fight on TV. And the military would have fights on Nellis Air Force Base. The GIs would fight three-round fights where they went all out and just beat the tar out of each other. And so we got big old boxing gloves, and we'd go out in the street in front of our house, and we'd fight each other. And I stunk at boxing because I flinched. You fake me, I'd go like this, and you'd smack me with the other hand. And after several bloody noses, I'm done. I'm done. And then as I got into middle school, I joined wrestling instead of, instead of basketball because you can say why I didn't play basketball. But I joined wrestling, and I have never in my life been so exhausted by six minutes of, of output of energy. Wrestling is three rounds, two minutes each. And when you're done with three rounds of, of wrestling, you are utterly exhausted. And Paul says here, I have fought the good fight. I've given it my all. And, and so the question becomes, what was Paul fighting for? It's just not an abstract thing. He, he specifically has something in mind which he expended his energy and, and depended on God's energy to accomplish. I'm going to read to you Colossians chapter 1, 28 and 29, where Paul uses the same word about fighting. It's, a tr it's translated different here, but it's the same word, and I'll show it to you. Listen, listen it's on a slide. Colossians 1.28. It's out in the middle of a sentence. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
Here it is, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's Paul's heart. Paul's heart and mission is to see people come to faith, to grow in the faith in that Christ-likeness, and someday, in some way, he stands before the Lord and presents those people he, he, he discipled to the Lord. He presents them mature. Then the next verse, for this I toil, struggling, that's our word fighting, struggling, fighting with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And this, for me as a pastor, has been a theme verse for me. I, I can say right now, I have never, would never say I felt I accomplished what Paul accomplished in, in his certainty that he fought the good fight. But this verse has always driven me that my job is to see the people God has given me to, to disciple to someday present them to Christ mature, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Galatians 4.19 says it simpler. Paul's concerned about the Galatians. They've fallen from, from grace. They've gone back to works. Works righteousness. And he says to them, I'm in labor again till Christ is formed in you. That's Paul's heart. To see people grow to maturity. To see Christ formed in them. To become like Jesus Christ. That's what he gave his life for. That's what he fought for. So we need to ask, as he encourages Timothy fulfill your ministry. Do, do you know that you have a ministry? It may not be as, as clear in your mind as what Timothy and Paul had. It may not be as clear as your mind as what Mark does every Sunday up here, or we'll start doing it every Sunday in a couple of weeks. Um, sometimes pastors are saying, well, you're the, you're the ministers. We're just the average people. Actually, we're all average people, and we've all been gifted by the Spirit of God with a purpose to serve. And we all need to have the same attitude, whatever God has called us to do, whether it's something very public or something very private behind the scenes, to have the attitude, I want to toil and struggle with all his might, all his energy, so that I can stand before him someday and say, I have fought the good fight. I've done what he's called me to do. Second Timothy 4, 7 again. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So he changes the the boxing or wrestling metaphor to a running metaphor. So we had a few boxers and a few wrestlers. Any, any runners in here? How much, how far do you like to run? You short distance, long distance? Both, okay, yeah. These short legs don't do well with either. Any other runners? Short distance, long distance? So, so give me an example of what you ran. Oh, hurdles. Nice. He went under him, though, yes, yes, yeah. Either way, either way. Um, you know, when it came to sports in high school, I played football, I wrestled, and I played baseball. But, but um, during the, um, after the baseball season one year, a little tiny school in southern Nevada called Indian Springs, a after the, the baseball was over, there was still the track um, regional meetings, the, the zone meetings. And whatever reason, I can't remember why, one of the guys that ran the last leg in the mile relay had pulled a muscle. And so they pulled me from the baseball team and said, would you run his leg? And I, I was in pretty good shape. So I said, sure, I'd love to. I had no clue what I was doing. Because the, a mile relay is 440 yards each. This is before they converted to the metric system. This was a true mile relay. Everyone ran 440 yards. 
And I was the, the last leg. The guy hands me the baton, and I'm in first. I'm, we're in the lead. Indian Springs High School is in the lead, and I keep that lead for, for uh, uh, you know, the first 100 yards, the first 200 yards, the first 250, 275, and then I, and then I, that someone's keep, I can see behind me someone's getting closer and closer. And then about 300 yards, it's like I went from running on, on track to running in a foot of water. Utterly just went, Moo! Because my energy was gone, my, my strength was gone, my legs became like jello, and that last 150 yards was um, not only painful, but, but as one person passed me, I had to take third to go to state. And I, I wouldn't go to state. I was running for a guy that was going to heal, and he would go to state. So I, I said, I, one guy passed me, two guys passed me, and the third one's going to pass me soon. And so this, this, this determination to I cannot take fourth place, cannot, and I didn't. Barely made it over the finish line so that the school took third place and went to state. But the imagery there of finishing the race, if, it, if, it, if my pride wasn't on the line, I said, this is stupid sport. Why do people do this? But, but I didn't quit. Paul says, I have finished the race. So whether it's sprinting or long distance, you, you know the energy output needed and not quitting. Paul, again, I have fought the good fight of ministry. I have finished the race of what God has called me to do. The last one. The last one's the one I want to I spend a few moments on. We go to 1230, right? I know we don't. I'm just messing with you. Seeing if you're listening. Again, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So Paul steps out of his metaphors into a, a more straightforward statement. I have kept the faith. What does he mean by that? Kept the faith. Did Paul have doubts that he would? When you think of a boxing match or a wrestling match or a running race, you, you can certainly think of the idea of giving up. I mean, I'm in wrestling, I'll, I'll be honest with you, in wrestling, I gave up a few times because I get claustrophobic, and if I got into a headlock where I could not get out, one time I bit a guy just to let me out because, because paranoia kicks in, panic kicks in, and I remember giving up a few times because I had to get out of that paranoia, that panic. Paul never gave up. Is Paul saying that he could have given up on the faith? I have kept the faith as though maybe the option was he wouldn't? I want to make clear to you right now before I go on, I firmly and deeply believe in what's called eternal security. Um, I prefer the phrase perseverance of the saints. And that is the concept that when God saves you and brings you into his family, he will never kick you out, ever. Um, I, I don't like the phrase once saved, always saved. Because it implies something that isn't biblical. It implies that you look back on an event. I said a prayer in April 1979. That's all I got to worry about. doesn't matter how I've lived my life since. And that's not what Scripture teaches us. That's not where we look for our assurance. So you hear me? I believe in eternal security. I, 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 don't, I believe God will never kick you out if you belong to Jesus. John 6, 25, John 6 35 to 40 is, is so clear as a bell. Jesus says this, All the Father gives to me will come to me. Every one of them. All the Father gives to me will come to me. I won't lose any. I won't kick any out. I will raise them all up on the last day. So it's comprehensive. Everyone the Father gives comes. 
Every one of those people that come, Jesus will not kick out. He won't lose them. They can't walk away. And he'll raise all of them up on the last day. That's definitive. Do you get that? In, in, um, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I think it is. Um, where is it? Let me look here. Yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, The Lord knows those who are his. God knows who belongs to him, and he keeps them. Philippians chapter 1, it says, God will finish the work he began in you. I like to use a coin for these kind of things. My mother was a waitress all of her life, and back in the 50s and 60s, people, people um, tipped in silver, silver. The coins were silver. So I have lots of silver dollars and, and silver dimes and, and quarters. Um, and so I keep this one as an illustration that the head side of the coin is God's role in our salvation, his sovereign love for us. Many passages teak about, teach about his sovereignty. The tail side of the coin is our responsibility in salvation. Um, and the scriptures that says God is sovereign over all. If, he, keep, if he, he put you in the family, he keeps you in the family, period. This side of the coin says, I must believe. I must repent. I must hold on. So, so God knows who belongs to him. Tail side of the coin. How do you know you're one of them? Where do you look in your life to give you assurance you belong to Christ? Okay, excellent. The, the, the only infallible source we have. I want to show you some of the Word of God to help you maybe refine a little bit of how we look at that. In the truncated gospel, and I've done this as a pastor, by the, by the way, I, I believe overall this truncated gospel I talk about, we can call it the watered-down gospel. We talk about a lot of things that make it sound like an insult. But it's an abbreviated form that has left important things out that those important things need to be brought back into it. And I believe the primary people responsible for this are past pastors. We, we are the ones who messed it up. So we're the ones that need to bring it back. So this is my attempt to bring some of it back. How do you know you belong to him? The reality in the New Testament, the reality that some appear to be in the faith but are not in the faith is all through the New Testament. They appear to be in, but then it becomes clear they're not. Let me give you a few examples so that we can... Here's where I'm going with this. What I want you to do is, like Paul, to have a perspective of keeping the faith. As opposed to say, well, I, I know I'm a Christian because in 1979 I said the prayer. And as a pastor, I've told people, look back to that day. And if you've done that, don't worry about it. And, and there's some truth there. There's some truth there that you have to enter into the faith some way. And, and, and we enter into the faith through this repentance, seeing our sin before God and repenting of it. And repentance is the idea of I'm going this way away from God, and I see my sin, I'm dead in my sins, and I turn around and I grab Jesus, and I hold on to him, and I put my faith in him. That's the idea of repentance and faith. It's essential. So if, if you're here today and you've never done that, I, I beg you, Turn from your sins and run to the Savior. He, he is forgiving, he's patient, he's loving, and he has incredible purpose for you. 
But as we look at the New Testament, when Paul talks about this idea of, of assurance of your salvation, he doesn't necessarily point back to that day. He points to today. Are you keeping the faith? So look at this possibility of those who did not keep the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's actually the text of next week's sermon. But they depart from the faith. What does that imply? They were in. They were in the community of God. They, they were with believers. Then, then they walked away. Have you, heard, have you heard of people who've walked away that, that you, you, you were certain they were in? I mean, there's certain, I remember, names leave me, I just forget. Um, Joshua Harris wrote a book, um, Say Goodbye to, I Kiss Dating Goodbye or something like that. And the last I heard, he walked away from the faith. Wrote books that help people grow in the faith. But he's walked away from us. I'm not a Christian anymore. How's that happen? If, if what I said earlier, if God has purchased you and made you a member of his family, he keeps you. You can't do that. But how do you know you belong to him? Very good. Tell me your name, sir. Troy, thank you very much. Excellent verse. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. Paul had led these Thessalonians to the Lord. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul led them to the Lord. They expressed faith. But his fear was Satan to come in and somehow turn them away from it. This reminds me of the parable of the sower. Do you remember the first seed falls on rocky ground and Satan steals the gospel away from them? Then there's the thorny ground and there's the rocky ground and there's the good ground. That's what we're looking for. But again, the possibility of someone that appears to be in the family but is not. Last one, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. This, is, this one is very important to me. As, as I think through my walk with Jesus. Now I remind you, Paul says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. That's the event, the past. You received it. In which you stand. That's today. I'm growing in my salvation. In which you are being saved. Okay, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So once again, Paul is concerned. Maybe their faith wasn't genuine. Maybe, maybe there was an emotional experience, but they didn't really understand what they were doing. That, that, that's what happens at evangelistic crusades, which I've been part of several of them. There's an emotional experience that in the end turns out to be not genuine because they don't ultimately, Troy was it? They don't ultimately know the Savior. They haven't heard his voice really. They heard the voice of the preacher. I tell you what, my voice is not the voice of the Savior. Amen? Amen? Okay, I just want to make sure that, you know. L l listen, no, this is on the screen. In Scripture, the assurance of salvation is not looking back at a past decision, but rather asking the question, am I holding fast to the word? Am I keeping the faith today, right now?
that's where I gain assurance that I am fighting the good fight. I am running the race. I'm not giving up. No matter what comes against me, I am not giving up. That's proof the Spirit of God is in me. It's proof I've been born again. So remember, salvation is a process. And each day we need to encourage one another about this growth in salvation. We, we are, I am one of God's instruments in your life and you're one of God's instruments in my life to help me along this path called salvation, help me along this path called Christ-likeness. 1 Timothy 4.16 is a verse that I've always struggled with. But it's in Scripture. You've got to struggle with things in Scripture. Sometimes, sometimes you know, there's, there's I, I have this belief I have, and eight verses support that belief, but there's two verses over here that just don't support my belief, so what do I do with them? Just ignore them. We can't do that. This is one of those verses that always bugged me. But, but it, it, we have to figure out, what does it mean in this system of salvation and my assurance? So Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I said, I don't save myself. God saves me. But what it shows you is in that process of the now, I'm growing in my salvation. I am being saved. And this is an active thing I am doing by the power of God. When I stand before God someday, on that day, all glory goes to him. You know, there's this concept of crowns. What time is it? Oh, boy. This concept of crowns, Paul talks about it in a minute. You get crowns for your service to him. You get rewards. I go, that's weird to me. It's all him. Well, why would I get something? Why, why would I work to get a crown? I should just work to please him. But so, so you get several crowns mentioned in Scripture. Then Revelation, it shows all the saints fall before Jesus, and what do they do with the crowns? They throw them at his feet. So in the end, anything I've done for the Lord is His. He did it. I don't get any credit for it. So th this is the whole concept of, of salvation is by grace through faith, not, not as a result of works, so you don't boast. I didn't earn anything, but I'm very active in the process, in that middle ground, the in-between time as I grow in my salvation. I am alive now. I'm no longer dead. I'm alive. I have the Spirit of God in me. And I've been commissioned to serve other people. And so I put my hands to the plow, as Jesus used that metaphor, and I look at the goal. And the goal is to become like Christ. And I put my hands to the plow, and I don't turn away. And so, I, in, in a sense, I, I am, boy, i got to be careful how I say this. When Paul says, you will say to yourself, that seems so, so works righteousness, works salvation. But it's in Scripture, we have to figure out, what do we do with it? I am very active by the power of God in me, and he gets all the glory in this process of my sanctification, my salvation. As I grow in my salvation, I must put my hand to the plow and engage what God has called me to do and be. Do you get it? But you get no credit. He does on that day. You will throw that crown back at his feet and say, you did it, Jesus, not me. Last verse. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. There's another verse. I'm going to let you look it up. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10 about we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema 
seat of Christ and give an account for everything we've done in our body, whether good or evil. It's a day of reckoning coming for believers and unbelievers. It's not a thing of salvation or not salvation. It's a thing of, I've saved you. I gave you a commission. What'd you do with it? What'd you do with it? All the gifts I've given you and the talents and the resources, what'd you do with them? If we have the truncated gospel, this Jesus distributor of benefits, his goal is to give me more. But if we have the full gospel, the sense of, of I've been commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve him, then he has empowered me and resourced me. I need to use that for his glory and for your benefit. So let me read the last verse to you. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. This is a tough one, Dick, because there's a prayer meeting tonight during the Super Bowl. That's mean. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what is the day? Second coming of Christ. The day is drawing near. So in light of that, and we read from Paul, the days are getting evil, more evil. Do not neglect meeting together and learn how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. That's our commission today. That's how we keep the faith. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, so much for your patience with us, your deep love with which you loved us when we were dead in our sins. You made us alive by grace. We are saved. Lord, that is a, a, an unbelievable passage. You made us alive. You put your Holy Spirit within us. You, you gave us a new heart, and you commissioned us, which some days seems impossible, hard. I don't want to do it. Selfishness kicks in. But it's my identity. Help me to realize who I am, a child of, of your son. He, I'm the people of Jesus. And to learn the great joy in serving him by serving his people. Thank you. And we love you. In Christ's name, we all pray. And we all said, amen.